I was blessed with growing up um, in a, not only a Christian family, uh, but with a pastor as my father. And I was very happy growing up that my dad was a pastor. Uh, I know there are some pastor's kids who don't like being pastor's kids. Uh, They feel a lot of pressure and so forth. They don't like that pressure. I didn't feel pressure. What I was grateful for is I had someone that I could bring my Bible questions to. The Lord saved me at a young age. I wanted to, to understand the Bible more, and so I'd have different questions, and I could always get a good answer from my dad. But people would ask me as I was growing up, do you want to be a pastor? And I didn't even have to think about that. I'd say, no, I had no interest whatsoever in being a pastor. Not because I thought badly of, of, of pastors, um, but because, just for me personally, that was not something that I would feel comfortable doing in the least. Uh, I did not feel comfortable interacting with people. I just wanted to serve behind the scenes. And when I went to college, I was a computer science major. And I was quite content with the thought of doing computer programming for the glory of God. I had tried leading Bible studies a few times when I was a senior in high school. Uh, There was a Christian club on campus. And uh, one time, I tried leading the Bible study there, but I thought it was a complete flop. One time, um, in our, the junior high and high school ministry in our church, um, I was asked to, to teach the Bible study. I agreed, but once again, I thought it was a complete, complete flop. I, I thought, this is not something God has gifted me for. This is not something I'm suited for. I have no interest in doing this any further. I'll leave it to those who are gifted for it. After my sophomore year of college, I was asked at the beginning of the summer uh, by Rob Jennon, who was my friend and also who was uh, leading the youth ministry um, at Irvine Community Church, where I had grown up. Uh, Rob asked me if I would help him that summer with the junior high and high school ministry. Now, looking back on it, I believe God, in His providence, moved me to say yes. Because if I had thought about it, I'd say, that's not something I desire to do. I have no interest in it. No, someone else would be better for that. But God, I didn't really think about it. God just moved me to agree to serve in the youth ministry that summer. Well, after several weeks, now God had already been working in my, my heart for a couple of years in some very significant ways leading up to this, and that's a whole other story. But after... Several weeks of being there, having the responsibility to seek the spiritual good of these junior high and high school students, the Lord gave me a real heart for them. I knew some of them may have professed to be Christians, but really were not genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saved, and I had a new heart for to see them be saved as well as I did see some in the youth ministry who who showed fruit of the Holy Spirit, who showed that they understood the gospel and they truly had been saved. The Lord gave me a heart to equip them, to encourage them, to help them to grow in Christ and to be a light for the Lord wherever the Lord had them. I began to have a new desire to teach the Bible study in that youth ministry. 
But I didn't tell anyone. But Rob came to me soon after, and he asked me would I be willing to take a turn uh, in teaching. He was teaching through the book of Acts. Would I be willing to take a turn in teaching? And I agreed to do so. And that time, when I taught, it was very different from previous times of teaching. That time when I taught God's Word, I sensed that the Spirit of God was empowering me to communicate God's Word to these junior high and high school students in a way that they could understand. And after being used of the Lord to teach that passage to them and to bring it to bear upon their lives, I really enjoyed doing so, and I wanted to continue. By the end of that summer, I recognized God had done something in me. He had empowered me to do something He had never empowered me to do before. I was recognizing He was giving me a heart to do something I'd never had a heart to do before. And that was to continue to minister God's Word to those students and, and then to go on to seminary to receive training for being a pastor and have the desire to go on to be a, a full-time youth pastor. By the end of that summer, I could not imagine doing anything with my life other than being a pastor, other than being a minister of God's Word and devoting my life to that. I finished my computer science degree. The Lord enabled me to go to seminary and while I was in seminary, the Lord gave me various opportunities and I ministered to junior high and high school students and then the pastor began asking me to preach um, on Sunday morning to the whole congregation and I really sensed the Lord empowering me to do so. And I really enjoyed being used of the Lord in that way. And so by the end of seminary, uh, as, as the Lord had been really connected me, not just with the youth, but with the adults in the church as well, I, I, I really had the desire to serve the Lord as the solo pastor of a small church, that I could preach the word Sunday after Sunday to the whole congregation, sensing that this was God's calling upon my life. Now, it is easy to have a wrong view of preachers. The way I see preaching is it's something that I cannot do in my own strength. It's not something that I have an inherent ability to do, but something that the Spirit of God enables me to do for the glory of God. It's easy to have a wrong view of preachers. There are many young men who, after being saved as, as new believers, with, with a great zeal to serve the Lord, think, well, the, the best way I can serve the Lord is by becoming a, a, a preacher. I've got to go to seminary. I've got to become a pastor. Well, sometimes that's very premature to think that. It certainly is wrong to think that the best way that a, a young man can serve the Lord is by be, going to seminary and becoming a pastor. The Lord Jesus says that we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Jesus Christ has left us in the world, as he puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, to be light, to be salt. 
And we as the church are not going to be light and salt if every man is a pastor. So the Lord has called some to be high school teachers. The Lord has called some to be computer programmers. The Lord has, has called some to be nurses, others to be doctors, and so forth. And we are to live for the glory of God in whatever vocation or, or life situation the Lord assigns to us. There's some raising children in the home, and so forth. So it's a wrong view of preachers to think that the best way a young man can serve the Lord is going to seminary and becoming a pastor. And many also get caught up in comparing preachers, like we might compare athletes. You, you, know, you know, if if you have a group of guys who really likes professional baseball, then when they get together, they might have these. They might banter about who's the best hitter. Who's the best pitcher? And they will argue with one another. Well, well, he's the best because of that. No, he's the best because of that. And it's very easy to get caught up in doing the same thing with preachers. Seeing well-known preachers, very gifted preachers as celebrity preachers. And starting to banter with one another. Well, this preacher is the best preacher because of this. No, this preacher is better because of this. We become armchair analysts. Where what we love to do is to analyze preachers. Well, that was an excellent sermon because of that. No, that sermon's better because of that. And so we begin not only comparing preachers, but comparing sermons and so forth. Meanwhile not truly in our heart receiving the ministry of the Word. Paul says a preacher is just a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. Why has Christ called some to be preachers and teachers in order to impart the Word of God that we might grow in our knowledge of the Word, and that we might be affected by the Word of God. We don't listen to preaching, just walk away and go, what a great sermon that was. Or what a great preacher that was. We don't listen to preaching to be, have just a great experience. And we are to listen to the preaching of the Word of God in order to be changed by the Word of God as the Spirit of God works through the preached Word of God in our hearts and lives. We need a biblical view of preachers and preaching. Because, frankly, there's a lot of unbiblical mindsets out there. Now, many would not say, well, this is, this is how I view preachers and preaching, but it can become practically the way that we end up regarding preachers. We need a biblical view, and we need to regard the ministers of the Word of God appropriately. That's what our passage is about. How we regard the ministers of the Word of God. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. I'm going to read it to us now. Please stand in honor of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us. 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. When we come to these verses, the Apostle Paul still has in mind the problems in the Corinthian church that he has been dealing with since chapter 1, verse 10. The, the first nine verses of the book were an introduction, and then he, he launched into addressing uh, these problems uh, in chapter 1, verse 10 and following. The church members were boasting in men. I want you to look back in chapter 3 at verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21 so let no one boast in men. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul has to tell them, let no one do so. Now this relates all the way back to chapter 1 verse 12, where the Apostle Paul said, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. That Paul is concerned with these things in our text is further seen if you go down to the verse that follows our text. Go to chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There it is again. That's what they were doing. One would be puffed up in favor of one preacher against another. One church leader against another. Party spirits, which Paul is addressing uh, in this first section of Corinthians, party spirit was harming the church. And if it was not brought to a stop, it was allowed to continue, it eventually fracture and destroy the church. But the problem was not only boasting in one leader over another. There were some individuals who were actually seeking to undermine the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Corinthians by publicly criticizing him. Uh, this is, starts to be seen in our text, and it will become clearer as we study further in chapter 4 in weeks ahead. Now, Paul has been addressing the problems in the church by teaching how we as Christians are to view the church, how we are to view her leaders, how we are to view her ministry. He doesn't just come in and say, this is wrong, knock it off. No, he seeks to impart a biblical mindset. Because if our mind is renewed with biblical truth, then the way that we speak, the way that we act will be transformed. It will be transformed by that truth. So that's where Paul's focus is. His focus is not so much on, well, you're doing that wrong and you're doing that wrong. He speaks of that. 
but his focus is on the truth that they either have not understood or the truth that they are not being mindful of. That if they did understand and if they were mindful of, it would transform this issue in the church. That's what Paul's focus has been. And Paul continues this approach in our text where he teaches about the church's ministers of the word. Uh, About those who are gifted in preaching and teaching and who devote themselves to the ministry of the word. Now, there is a sense in which every believer is to be a minister of the word. All of us are called to evangelize. All of us are called to speak the truth of God's word in love to one another for edification. There is a sense in which every believer is to be a minister of the word. But, in this text that we are looking at today, Paul has in mind those who are specially gifted for the ministry of the word who are specially called to it, and who are devoted to the ministry of the Word. Men like Paul himself, and Apollos, and Cephas. Today it includes those who are gifted to preach or teach, and have been given a preaching or teaching role in the local church. Our English word minister is a good word to use when explaining this text, because our English word minister means a servant which is exactly what our text says one is. A minister is a servant. Well, we're going to see this morning in this text three truths regarding every minister of the Word of God so that you will view and relate to ministers rightly in order that we as a church will glorify God. The outline that I'm going to use, um, I'm taking from John MacArthur. Uh, his, he used an excellent outline uh, when he preached this, and so I'm not going to try to improve upon that. First of all, we will see in this text the identity of the minister. Second, the requirement of the minister. And thirdly, the evaluation of the minister. First, the identity of the minister in verse 1. Take a close look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Who is Paul referring to with the word us? This is how one should regard us. With this word us, he's referring to himself, to Apollos, to Cephas, all of whom Paul named two verses earlier. He's also referring to anyone else who faithfully ministered the word to the Corinthians. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. How should ministers of the word be regarded? Paul says, first of all, as servants of Christ. Now this word servant um, is translated from the Greek word, uh, which is not the normal word for servant. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And it's important to understand uh, that when we have a certain English word repeated in our New Testament, it doesn't always necessarily come from the same word in the original. In this case, this word for servant is not the normal word for servant. This Greek word originally meant an under rower, a slave who rowed below a ship's deck. And the word came to be used of a subordinate servant of any kind. 
The emphasis in this word is, is that they are under a master. Now Paul says the church's ministers are servants of Christ. That their whole business is to do what the Lord Christ commands them. They cannot serve men rightly unless they serve the Lord Jesus rightly. Now, this is not the kind of position that the world seeks. The world is not seeking positions of servanthood. But, this position is one that the true minister, transformed by the grace of Christ, recognizes as a privilege. It is a privilege to be a servant of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. The Apostle Paul gave thanks uh, to Christ for appointing Paul to Christ's service. For calling the Apostle Paul to be a servant of Christ. The true minister, transformed by the grace of Christ, recognizes it to be a privilege to be a servant of Christ. Ministers should be regarded first as servants of Christ, and secondly, Paul says, as stewards of the, of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. The word steward in the original language originally meant someone who had been entrusted with managing a household. Stewards were generally servants, and the master would entrust his resources to his steward, and from time to time would require from the steward an account of his stewardship. The steward was to dispense his master's resources to accomplish his master's purposes. In the parable that we read earlier of the talents, that master had three stewards. And we saw how he entrusted a different number of talents to each of his stewards when he went away. They were to use those talents, that money, to accomplish the purposes, the business of the master while he was away. Those talents were entrusted to the stewards. Now, the word steward here, in the original, came to have a broader range of meaning beyond just the manager of a household. And it came to refer to any person in a position of trust and accountable to another, just like a manager of a household. Now Paul says here, a minister in a church is a steward of the mysteries of God. He's saying that Christ has entrusted the minister with dispensing the mysteries of God. And for this, the minister will have to give an account to Christ. Every steward has to give an account to their master. Now, what are these mysteries of God? The minister is a steward of the mysteries of God. Well, the same Greek word for mysteries was used back in chapter 2, verse 7. I want you to go back to chapter 2, verse 7. It was just translated a little bit differently, so it would be smooth English. Chapter 2, verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Notice, notice that word secret. We impart a secret 
wisdom of God. That word secret in the original language is the same word as mysteries in our text. The mysteries of God, the secrets of God. And when we studied chapter 2 verse 7... We saw that the mysteries of God, which this term is used multiple places in the epistles, we saw that the mysteries of God are truths that God did not clearly reveal until the coming of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Truths that God had kept fairly secret up until that point. These truths are essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are New Testament truths. As mysteries, no one could discover them using human reason. But before Christ came and God revealed these truths, the Old Testament saints, they were looking forward to see what God was going to do, how God was going to fulfill promises, but they had no ability to discover these mysteries. They could not know them until God revealed them. As mysteries, no one can discover them using human reason. Now, Paul says a minister is a steward of the mysteries of God. That a minister is entrusted by Christ with proclaiming and teaching the great truths of the New Testament together with the rest of Scripture. The New Testament completes Scripture... And together with the Old Testament forms a whole. And so being a steward of the mysteries of God makes one really a steward of the whole Bible. Because you can't proclaim the mysteries of God without proclaiming the previous revelation God has given. Understand from this that a minister is not an originator of messages. There are some pastors, some preachers out there when you listen to your, their sermon, you think, this sounds, like, this sounds like a whole lot of origination from the speaker. This doesn't so much sound like the Word of God. We see from this, a minister is not an originator of messages. A minister is not a teacher of the doctrines of men. But a minister is the dispenser of the truth which God has revealed through Christ. The main responsibility that Christ has given to pastors and to elders in His church is to make known the mysteries of God. To make known the Scriptures centered on Christ and Him crucified. Remember how Paul, very early on in this book, spoke of the message of the cross and how the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but is recognized rightly to be the wisdom of God by those who are being saved. These mysteries of God center in Christ and Him crucified. A crucified Messiah who is raised on the third day in victory to save sinners and give them eternal life. A minister is one whose main responsibility from Christ, is to make known the mysteries of God. To make known the Scriptures centered on Christ and Him crucified. Now there are many good things calling for a pastor's attention. You know, if, if I were to really make a list of everything that would be good to do 
as a pastor that would be nice to do as a pastor this next week? And I were to estimate how much time each would take, and I were to add them all up, it would be about a year's worth of work. There's many things that call for a pastor's attention. Many good things that a pastor could do with their time. But to make one of these other things, the pastor's main focus is to fail men as well as the Lord. Because a minister of the Word is first of all a steward of the mysteries of God. As a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. A pastor who spends little time in the Word is unable to meet people's deepest needs because he is neglecting his greatest resource for correctly knowing and adequately meeting those needs, the Scriptures. A minister is first a steward of God's mysteries. Then and only then can he best minister to people. The first term in verse 1, servant of Christ, speaks of the minister's master. He's a servant of Christ. Well, the second term, steward of the mysteries of God, speaks of the stewardship entrusted to the minister. Entrusted with dispensing the mysteries of God. Now let me ask you this morning, is this how you regard the church's preachers and teachers? Do you regard them, do you think of them as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God? The Corinthian church did not regard the church's preachers and teachers this way. And that is why they ran into the problems that Paul has been addressing in their behavior. The the Corinthian church had a worldly view of what ministers should be, just as many churches today have a worldly view of what ministers should be. There there are churches who, who think that a minister should be a CEO, of the church. There are churches who, who, who think that the, the, the main preaching pastor should be someone that looks like a celebrity, someone who will act as a, a magnet through their great charisma to draw in crowds of people. And on and on the list goes. The Corinthian church and many churches today have a worldly view of what ministers should be. And Paul corrects all of that, saying, Let's One, regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You and I need to let this verse inform our view of the church's preachers and teachers. A preacher or teacher might not be faithful to this. They might not live this out, but we need to understand biblically this is what they are. Now, this is the identity of the the minister. And this identity determines the requirement of the minister. The identity determines the requirement of the minister. And we see the requirement in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. This is true of household stewards. Uh, their, Their master will require them to be trustworthy. And this is also true of stewards of the mysteries of God. That Christ requires them to be trustworthy. What is required of a steward, more than anything else, is this. 
Now, as my edition of the ESV translates it, we have the word trustworthy. But the current edition of the ESV, the ESV has gone through a couple revisions. The current edition of the ESV translates this word as faithful. That would be a, a more common translation of the Greek word pistos, faithful. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And, and here I think that is a better translation. That's what's required of stewards, is being faithful. Faithful with what the Master entrusts to Him. This is what Christ requires of every one of His stewards. No minister can be content that the other ministers with whom he's associated are faithful. No minister can think, well, their faithfulness makes up for me. No. Above all else, Christ requires every one of His stewards to be faithful. Now, notice what the requirement is not. It's not required of stewards to be eloquent. It's not required of stewards to be brilliant. It's not required of stewards to, be, to have a degree from an esteemed school. It's not required of stewards to have great popularity with people. It's not required of stewards to be creative, to have a great charisma that just attracts people. It's not required of stewards to be culturally aware. No, it's required of stewards to be faithful. Results are not required. Good fruit in the lives of those we minister is not required of the steward. The steward has no control over fruit in people's lives. The minister can't change hearts. The minister can't change lives. He's simply to be faithful in proclaiming the word of God. And faithful in praying that the Spirit of God will take that word, will take the mysteries of God, and will cause them to, to, to take deep root in the hearts of the listeners, and that the Spirit of God will work through the word to transform the hearts and lives of the listeners. Results are not required of the steward. Numbers are not required of the steward. And so it really would be foolish if pastors got together and they started to compare, well, how many baptisms have you had? Let's see who had more baptisms this last year. Who had more new members this last year? Who has the larger congregation? No. Numbers are not required of the steward. Faithfulness. Faithfulness with what has been entrusted to him. Faithfulness in dispensing those mysteries of God. Think about the Old Testament prophets. When Isaiah is called, in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord makes clear to him, his ministry is largely going to be a ministry of judgment. He's going to speak God's word to the nation of, of Israel. And for the most part, it's going to be used by God to increase their judgment. Because they're, they're, they're not going to listen. They're not going to heed they're going to continue in their stubborn rebellion and unbelief. That's what his ministry would be about. And then there's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You see that for the most part, as he ministered the word, he was rejected. The word was rejected. And so the whole kingdom goes into exile 
under God's judgment because they didn't heed the word of the prophets. What was required of Jeremiah was faithfulness. What was required of Isaiah was faithfulness, not results. So Christ requires of his stewards faithfulness to serve the congregation, the food of God's word, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse, 12, um, verse 2, the mandate to the preacher, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. That means at all times, day after day, Week after week, year after year, decade after decade. Faithfulness is what is required. Now, let me ask you, what would you do if half the times that you went to a restaurant, you found the chef was not preparing food that day? Well, I sure prepared a lot of food yesterday, so I need a break. No food today. Or, I just didn't feel like it today. I was depressed today. No food today. What would you do? You would stop going to that restaurant. Or you would ask the owner of that restaurant to fire his chef. Faithfulness to serve the congregation, the food of God's word, is what is required. Faithfulness to proclaim the pure word of God. Not adulterating the word of God. Not adding to the Word of God. Not subtracting from the Word of God. Not changing the Word of God. Not twisting the Word of God. Not misrepresenting the Word of God. Not substituting something for the Word of God. Not watering down the Word of God. The steward is faithful to proclaim the pure Word of God. As we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The steward is required to be faithful in rightly handling the word of truth. It is because such faithfulness is required of the minister that the regular preaching in a church must be expository preaching. Expository preaching is taking part of the Word of God and explaining it, exposing it, explaining what it means in context, interpreting it with an interpretation that is true to God's Word. Expository preaching is not choosing a passage and using it as a springboard to begin to talk about something else that the preacher really wants to talk about. Well, we'll start in Scripture, we'll read a few verses, and now I'm going to talk about something else this brings my mind to that I really want to talk about. That's not expository preaching. Expository preaching is not the preacher forming his own message and using the Bible to try to support his message. Now, expository preaching is the preacher studies part of the Word of God to see what has God said in context, what has He said. And so then, in the sermon, the main idea of the sermon reflects the main idea of the passage. 
The points in the sermon reflect the points in the passage. The tone of the sermon reflects the tone of the passage. The sermon, in other words, is driven by the Word of God rather than being driven by the preacher. And so we must, as a church, have a regular diet of expository preaching. And typically, expository preaching will take a book of the Bible and will go through it from beginning to end because when you do so, you understand well the previous context because you've already studied it thoroughly. And so it helps guard the sermon from being the preacher's ideas. It doesn't matter what the preacher thinks. It doesn't matter what the preacher would, would, would suggest to you. What matters is what has God said and how does it bear upon our lives today? And that's what expository preaching is about. Because the minister is to be, or is, not is to be, is, it's an identity, is a steward of the mysteries of God, and because it's required that he be faithful, then we need faithful preaching of the Word of God in our churches. The identity of the minister determines the requirement of the minister. Because he is a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, the requirement is that he be faithful. And the identity of the minister also determines the evaluation of the minister. The evaluation of the minister. And we see that in verses 3 through 5. Take a close look beginning at verse 3. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. What we see here is because the minister is a servant of the Lord Christ, it is the Lord Christ who judges him. In verse 3, Paul says, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. That word judged can also be translated examined, as the New American Standard does. With me it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Paul writes this because some of the Corinthians were judging Paul. You can just gather that from what Paul is saying here. Some of the Corinthians were judging Paul. Not judging if his preaching was faithful to Scripture. Not judging if he was obedient to Christ's commandments. But judging Paul by worldly standards. Human standards. Fleshly standards. Remember all that Paul has said about the wisdom of the world and and the wisdom of man in contrast to the wisdom of God. The Corinthians were enamored with the wisdom of the world. And they were judging according to that. Some of the Corinthians were judging Paul Not whether his preaching was faithful to Scripture, not whether he was obedient to Christ's commandments, but judging him by worldly standards, human standards, fleshly standards. Now, I was thinking about this this week. If I had been in Paul's position, and there were these people in this this church, this this, this faction, uh, who, who were criticizing me, who, who, who are judging me with, according to standards that are worldly standards. Uh, I know my pride would have been pricked. 
if I was in Paul's position. But Paul wasn't puffed up in pride. Being judged by one of the factions in the Corinthian church was a very small thing to him, he tells us. Because he knew he was in the service of another. He knew the Corinthians' evaluations of him were irrelevant. He knew that what his master thinks is what counts. It should be a very small thing to us as ministers when our ministry is either criticized by men or praised by men. It should be a very small thing to us. Now, I'm not talking about being ungrateful for encouragement that is given to us, nor am I talking about arrogantly dismissing helpful correction that's given to us. I am saying that the judgments of men should never take on a weightiness in our mind anywhere close to the weightiness of Christ's evaluation of our ministry. So Paul says here in verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He does not even judge himself. Not, not because he is irresponsible, but again, because what counts is what his master thinks. You know, it is very easy after preaching a sermon to criticize your own preaching. I went too long. I lost my place. I spoke too fast. My introduction should have been better. And it's also easy to praise your own preaching. It's harder to have the mindset taught here, I do not even judge myself. Now, Paul here is not speaking against all self-examination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 28, he actually gives an instruction to examine ourselves. He says there in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He calls upon every Christian to examine themselves. But Paul here is not speaking against all self-examination. And Paul is not speaking about ignoring shortcomings in one's ministry that need to be worked on. And he's certainly not speaking about ignoring sin that needs to be confessed or forsaken. But again, he's talking about not letting our own evaluation of our ministry take on a weightiness in our mind anywhere close to the weightiness of Christ's evaluation of our ministry. What does it really matter if I think my sermon was, was bad for these reasons? What matters is what Christ thought of that sermon. He's my master. I'm not my own master. What matters is what Christ thinks of it. Paul says, I, I, I do not even judge myself. Now, in verse 4, Paul qualifies what he just said about not judging himself. Look at verse 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself. Now, Paul here does not mean that he did not struggle with sin. Just read Romans 7, and you'll, you'll read about his struggle with sin. It talks about doing the things that he hates, it's sin, and not doing the things that he loves, which is righteousness. Now, he did have a struggle, a spiritual struggle, just like all of us do. He's not claiming to be immune from that. 
What he means here when he says, I am not aware of anything against myself, he means he has a clear conscience about his ministry. He goes on, but I am not thereby acquitted. Paul is not his own judge. Having a clear conscience does not necessarily mean that he is in the right. He goes on, it is the Lord who judges me. That is the Lord Jesus Christ who judges me. The Lord Jesus Christ is our our master. The Greek word kurios can be translated Lord or master. Same word, same title. It is the Lord who judges me. It is our, our master who judges me. It is the one whose servant we are who judges me. It is the one who entrusted ministry to us who judges me. It is His evaluation that truly matters. Now how should these truths affect us? Look at verse 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. He is not prohibiting any and all judgment of others in the church. Go forward to chapter 5, verse 9. In chapter 5, Paul will give instructions to the church uh, to remove from the church one of its members who was involved in gross sexual immorality. Look at what he says about the need to discipline that member in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So there was this member of the church who was in unrepentant sin. It was known to the church. And Paul said the church is to judge in this matter. They are to judge the individual by removing them from the congregation with the desire, with the prayer, that as they are turned over to Satan, they will be brought to repentance. If they are brought to repentance, then they are to be received back into the membership of the church. But Paul says you are to remove them and you are not to associate with them. So there certainly is a place and a time uh, to, to judge others in the church of God. Paul, in our text, when he says in verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, he certainly is not prohibiting any and all judgment of others in the church. Just think about this epistle that Paul is writing. In this epistle, he rebukes and corrects a sizable number of problems, problems in the Corinthian church. He, he's judged these issues to be real problems. And so he rebukes them, he corrects them. He's not prohibiting any and all judgment of others in the church. 
Neither, here in verse 5, is the apostle prohibiting any judgment of a preacher. When a preacher's teaching is contrary to Scripture, or there is unrepentant sin in the life of a preacher, he is to be confronted. Some false teachers respond to rebuke by quoting Psalm 105.15, Touch not my anointed ones. I have heard Benny Hinn quote this passage. And for good reason. Christians will hear the teaching of false teachers like Benny Hinn, and they will stand against that. They will call it false teaching. They will call people to turn away from that. They will call upon such teachers to stop their false teaching. Benny Hinn's response has been, well, the scripture says in Psalm 105.15, Touch not my anointed ones. He's ripping the verse out of context. The verse refers to how the Lord protected the patriarchs from pagan kings. He's not saying that God's people are not to rebuke teachers in their midst who are teaching things that are contrary to the scriptures. Taking it out of context. Scripture does not teach that preachers are in a different class than other believers and are not to be rebuked and corrected for going contrary to Scripture. Where Scripture clearly shows that a minister is contrary to it, we are to rebuke and correct. What our text prohibits is pronouncing judgment outside of that. It prohibits judging according to some other standard than the Scriptures. Our text prohibits judging a minister's heart and the purposes of his heart. Our text prohibits the sort of judging that some of the Corinthians were doing as they were seeking to undermine Paul's influence upon the Corinthians, seeking to undermine his ministry to them. We are instructed here in our text not to pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. That is the time when our Lord Jesus Christ will will judge us, the time when the Lord Jesus will examine us. As the previous verse said that he will do. Remember verse 4 ended, it is the Lord who judges me. And there's coming a day when Jesus will do so. It will be after he returns. This is the day that Paul had in mind back in chapter 3 verse 13. When he said each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. It's the day of Christ, the day of his return. At that time, we read in our text, our Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. In other words, verse 5 is saying that our Lord will examine our whole ministry, evaluating if we were faithful or not. It means His his examination will include things that were not visible to other people, including the, the purposes of our heart, the intentions of our heart. Understand from these words here in verse 5 that he will disclose the purposes of the heart. Understand from this that the purposes of your heart matter. It matters why you serve Christ. It matters why a preacher gets up and preaches a sermon. If he's doing it for money, that's a problem. It's a lack of faithfulness. The purposes must be right in God's sight. It matters why you serve Christ. On the, on the day of Christ's return, He will disclose the purposes of the heart. He will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness. 
the things that have been private, that others have not known, or the things that have only been known by a small number of people. He will bring them to light. Our Lord will examine our whole ministry, evaluating if we were faithful or not. He will expose the purposes of the heart. He will expose the things that have not been seen. No matter if they show us to be faithful or they show us to be unfaithful, He will expose them. He will reveal them. Now let's think about it. Could we expect anything different from the one whose servant we are? The one who has made us His steward. Could we expect that He would not have a day of evaluating our service? Could we expect that He would not evaluate our faithfulness with what He has entrusted to us? What what kind of Lord and Master would He be if He never examined our service? He, He appointed us. He entrusted ministry to us, but He never looked at the work. He never examined it. What kind of Lord and Master would He be? Our text goes on, then each one will reserve, I'm sorry, then each one will receive his commendation from God. That is, each faithful servant of Christ will receive his commendation from God. We read this morning the parable of the talents. And when the master commends his faithful servants, he does so with those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You see that with the first servant, you see that with the second servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Words of commendation from the Master. Our text says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Those words are something that every minister should desire to hear on that day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not you built a huge church. Not you had a huge following on the internet. Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, what a work is described to Christ here in verse 5. This work of Christ that's spoken of in verse 5 requires omniscience. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. He will evaluate everything in a defining way. He will give God's commendation Only one who is God can do this. You see the deity of Christ in verse 5. Jesus Christ knows those things that no one else knows. Jesus knows the purposes of your heart. Jesus Christ evaluates everything in a defining way. And He will give God's commendation. Notice that in that last verse, that it's from God then each one will receive his commendation from God. Jesus will commend them, but that commendation is said to come from God. Jesus is God. God made flesh. Our text instructs us, do not pronounce judgment before the coming of the Lord. Leave the judgment to Him. Leave it to the one who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Leave it to the one who will judge authoritatively, completely and perfectly. Leave it to him. So let me ask you, have you been forming judgments that this passage prohibits you from forming? If you have been forming judgments that this passage prohibits, receive the correction that this passage gives. Now, various applications can be made. 
from this passage to our individual lives and to our life as a church. But I only have time to zero in on two main areas of application. First, I want to address our elders and others who have teaching positions in the church. If you are an elder or you have a teaching position, then let this passage form your understanding of what it means to be a teacher of God's Word. Being a teacher of God's Word means that you are a servant of Christ. It means that you are a steward of the mysteries of God. And it means that what Christ requires from you more than anything is faithfulness. So let me ask you, are you being faithful? When you preach or you teach the Word of God, whom are you seeking to please? Is it Christ or is it the people you speak to? Whose evaluation of your teaching really matters to you? Is it the evaluation of your listeners? Or is it the evaluation of your Lord Jesus Christ? Whose commendation are you seeking? Are you seeking the people whom you teach, to whom you preach? Are you looking for their commendation? Are you looking for Christ's commendation on the day of His return? How do you handle criticism? Does criticism ruin your week? If you have the mindset that Paul teaches here, your week will not be ruined by receiving criticism. He understood it's a very small thing to be judged by another man. Very small thing. How do you handle criticism? And your response to criticism, what does that show about your mindset? What does that show about your heart? And along with that, how do you handle praise? Are you craving praise? When you receive praise, does that puff you up? Does that make your weak? Two people praised you afterwards? That shows that your heart's in the wrong place. Paul says it's such a small thing, such a small thing to be judged by another, whether that's positive or negative. Such a small thing. Because what matters is what Christ thinks and what Christ will say. How do you think of your own teaching? You know, a- after you have taught a lesson in Sunday school or you have, have taught in men's fellowship or women's Bible study or after you've preached a sermon here, how do you think of your own teaching? Are you going back evaluating it according to fleshly standards, worldly standards? Human standards? Is your mind filled with evaluating, going back over every single thing you said? If you're consumed with evaluating your own teaching, again, your heart's in the wrong place. Because it's not your evaluation that matters. It's Christ's evaluation. So I exhort you, if you are a preacher or a teacher of God's Word after what we have seen this morning, to do some prayerful self-examination of the proper kind. 
We're not to be self-examining as far as using worldly standards, human standards, putting ourselves in the position of Christ. But in light of what we've seen, we are to examine our hearts. Whose praise are we seeking? Whose evaluation really matters to us? We have to do some prayerful self-examination of where our hearts are. We have to ask the Lord for the grace to have a change of mind, a change of heart where that is needed. Second, I want to address all of us as, as those who listen to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We have seen how we are to regard ministers of God's Word. We have been instructed to leave judgment to the Lord. Now, in light of what this passage teaches about ministers, what should we do instead of judging our ministers? Any time that we have a prohibition in Scripture, like most of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions, if we have a prohibition in Scripture, the implication is we are to do the opposite. So, there is the commandment, you shall not steal. Well, what does it mean that I should do? It means I should protect other people's property. It means that I should work for a living so that I can be generous and give to others. So in this instance, I'm not to, to judge. So what am I to do instead? We should receive the preaching and teaching of God's word with humble hearts. What is a humble heart before the word of God? It's a teachable heart. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about that. When someone has prepared for us a, a lesson on God's Word or a message from God's Word, when they, when they come as a servant of Christ to minister the Word to us, then we are to receive the Word with a humble heart. We, we are to have a teachable heart. We are to, seeking to be affected by the Word of God, to be taught, to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be trained in righteousness, that we be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm not listening to this message in order to critique the preacher. I'm not listening to this message in order to simply grow in knowledge. I am listening to this passage being preached or being taught in order that I would be affected in all the ways that God has intended in giving us His Word. We're not to be the same after listening to the Word of God. James chapter 1. Don't just be a hearer of the Word of God, but be a, effect, but be a doer. So we should receive the preaching and teaching of God's word with humble, teachable, soft hearts. And we, should be, and we should seek to be nourished by the preaching and teaching of God's word. As we gather together to hear the word of God preached, it ought to be with the desire that my soul would be nourished. The word of God is spiritual food for us. And just as physical food will nourish your physical body, so the Word of God will, spirit, will nourish our souls. Let us come to the preaching of the Word of God to be nourished by the Word. It also means that we should pray for our ministers. We, we, we've learned the identity of a minister. A minister is a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. We've learned what Christ requires of ministers to be faithful. And we've talked about what that looks like. So we should, in light of knowing this, we should pray for our ministers. We should pray for our ministers that the Lord would keep them mindful of this identity that they have as a minister of the Word of God. We should pray for them that the Lord would enable them to be faithful with what has been entrusted to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would be faithful in imparting the mysteries of God. We're to pray for them. That they would be protected from the evil one. 
We're to be protect, we'd be praying for their spiritual growth, that their life and their message would match. And we should recognize that we too are servants of Christ. And our service to Christ will likewise be examined by Him. It's not just the ministers of the Word whose service to Christ will be examined on that final day, but Christ will examine the service of all of His servants. And every believer is a servant of Christ. And so we listen to the Word of God in order that we would be equipped so that we could faithfully serve Christ. And here on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me ask you, are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? A person does not become a servant of Christ by volunteering for it. A person becomes a servant of Christ by redemption. The Bible says, Jesus says, that apart from Christ, we are slaves of sin. We're in bondage to sin. We serve sin by living for ourselves rather than living for God. Because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment. This is why we need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has acted to save sinners. God the Father sent His Son into the world. Jesus Christ laid down His life as the ransom. He redeemed sinners at the cross. The fact that Jesus' death is a ran- was a ransom, that, that Christ redeemed sinners at the cross, means that He purchased them for Himself. He purchased them out of slavery to sin, releasing them from that bondage in order to now serve Him. Everyone serves some master. We either serve sin or we serve Christ. Christ redeemed us at the cross. And when that redemption is applied by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, as one hears the gospel and and believes with a repentant heart, as the Holy Spirit applies that redeeming work of Christ to the sinner's soul, The soul is set free. The sinner is set free and becomes a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer a slave to sin. We've been set free. Now, by redemption, we're a servant of Christ. To follow Christ. To serve Him. To live for Him. No one is a servant of Christ by volunteering for it, but by redemption. This morning... If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, repent of your sin. Repent of your transgressions of God's law and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Trusting Him as your Savior. Trusting in His salvation that He accomplished at the cross that was followed by the resurrection on the third day. If there was no resurrection, then there'd be no point in us being here. But Jesus was raised on the third day in victory. And because Christ lives, all who believe in Him will likewise live. Because Christ lives, and he, after dying for sinners, He saves all who come to Him in repentance and faith. Come to Him today in repentance. Come to Him today in faith, trusting Him as your Savior, submitting to Him as your Lord, to follow Him the rest of your days. He will give you eternal life. He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will declare you righteous in His sight. 
who will adopt you into his family. He will give you his spirit. He will make you new. He will begin a work of sanctification in your life. And one day he will glorify you with Christ. Don't wait another day to come to Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. The Bible warns against hardening your heart. If you are being convicted this morning by the Spirit of God, if this morning your eyes are being opened to, to see Jesus as the Savior that whom, whom you need, if your eyes are being opened to see Jesus as the Lord whom you must follow, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May the Lord use what we have seen in His Word this morning in all of our lives for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the Gospel of Christ. Your mysteries that You prepared for so many centuries to reveal with the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for salvation in his name, eternal life through his death and resurrection. Lord, we are unworthy servants. It is by your grace that you save us, and it's by your grace that you call us into service. We thank you, Father, that, that you've given us your word to study, to read, to meditate upon that we would be progressively transformed as believers by your word into the image of Christ. That by your word we'd be equipped for every good work for which you have saved us. And we pray, Father, that you would use what we have seen this morning uh, towards that end. Lord, enable us to, to view the ministers of your word rightly. We pray, Father, for the ministers of the Word in our congregation, that you would enable us to be faithful with that stewardship. We pray, Father, that your Word would bring forth much fruit by your Spirit in all of our hearts and lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.